Well, happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. I see a lot of green out there, actually. Whether it was accidental or not, mine was not. I always like, well, I sort of like celebrating all these little holidays. I think maybe I'm a third grader or a third grade teacher, actually, at heart. You know, I have like the sort of dorky Halloween pins that I enjoy wearing and socks of candy corn. But St. Patrick's Day is an especially fascinating holiday to me in the way that we celebrate it here in America. It's sort of the um, kiss me, I'm Irish, or close enough, or actually not at all Irish, but that's okay because it's St. Patrick's Day, so I'm Irish today holiday. There is a shiny green shamrock decoration hanging on the door of my daughter's daycare provider. She is an immigrant uh, and a Palestinian. And then this morning, my husband went out to get muffins and bagels at Giant, and the bagels have been dyed green. (laughs) Yep, because that makes sense. (laughs) All those Irish bagels. (laughs) Now, obviously, you can see the greening of, um, of America for this day as sort of a symptom of just rampant commercialization, although I don't think he bought the bagels because they were green and actually, upon receipt of the bagels, members of my family expressed some um, lack of clarity about whether they would be consuming the green bagels. <laughs> but I prefer to see it not as really about commercialization, but as about sort of the ultimate in an immigrant group being integrated into American culture. So integrated that we have all absorbed a little bit of that cultural experience. Today, we're all Irish. I don't know if you remember the, the Obama signs from, I'm not sure if it was the first election or the second election, but with shamrocks all over them, and it was, oh, apostrophe, Obama. <laughs> I loved it. It certainly wasn't always that way for the Irish when they came here. You know, they... Um, I printed things all day today. There we go. There we go. I'm, I, I'm with you. So it wasn't always that way for the Irish when they came here. My own Irish forebearers came in the 18th century, came as people of privilege largely, and when they were just kind of trickling in, and they were easily assimilated into American culture. But then many of us associate Irish immigration with a huge wave of immigration from Ireland in the mid-19th century during the potato famine. And you might be familiar with some of what the Irish immigrants at that time faced when they came in as part of this huge wave, the anti-Irish rhetoric and laws. Irish at that time in America were considered non-white, and uh, they were actually called frequently the black Irish, and barred from jobs and restaurants and stores. I think it was bound up in many ways with the fact that they were Catholic, seen as drunkards and uneducated, that they had a fundamental otherness about them, um, at least as they were experienced by mainstream American culture, whatever that meant at the time. And that's where we are right now, I think, in this generation's immigration debate or immigration conversation, as we grapple with this experience of otherness. Although we have immigrants from many countries in America right now, the overwhelming conversation at this time is about immigrants from Latin America. And it makes sense 
In a couple of ways, I suppose. First of all, it's really kind of the biggest group. You think about that wave of Irish immigrants during the potato famine. There's a a wave of Spanish-speaking immigrants from a variety of um, Latin American, South American, and Central American countries right now. But also because, in some ways, those immigrants carry the markers of what we see as otherness in America. Frequently, they are poor frequently without much formal education, often because schools simply aren't available in their home countries. And, and of course, this is the topic of the biggest debate in America right now. Sometimes they are without papers. There's an interesting conversation around papers, I think, for those of us whose families came to America many generations ago. The very first immigration law in America went into effect in 1875, after many, although not all, of my ancestors were already here. But even after that first immigration law, the concept of papers and documentation and kind of what that looked like and how it was enforced has changed over time in America. I remember a July 4th platform that was here a few years ago where we told and invited people to tell their own stories of immigration, their families' stories of how they came here to America. And every single story that was shared had something that wasn't quite legit about it. Someone who had posed as a cousin back in Russia to get over. Someone who hid under a mother's skirt when they came through. That said, the conversation now is certainly around documentation in many ways in what exists as a much more documented world today. So I'd like to share just a little bit of my journey around immigration and my awareness around immigration and see if you might find yourself somewhere in that journey, share a little bit of what I've learned and what I very much continue to learn there. The truth is that I hadn't thought that much about immigration um, until a trip to Phoenix that I took last June uh, for the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, which was held there. And, and they had made a choice to hold the General Assembly in Phoenix a number of years ago before um, uh, some of the laws were passed that were so clearly uh, anti-immigrant, anti-immigration. And so there was a big debate within the Unitarian Universalist Association about whether to keep the, the um, assembly there or not, and lots of conversation with partners on the ground and what would be most helpful and what would be helpful to, to folks, um, to immigrants often working in a service economy if everybody leaves. And so ultimately what they decided was they would keep it there. They used hotels only that had certain practices and that fell within within a range that they considered acceptable. And they changed the entire format of the National Assembly to be entirely focused on immigration. And so you you knew if you were going to this General Assembly in Phoenix that you were going to be learning about immigration. That's what the workshops were on. It's what the sermons were about. It's what the panels spoke to and the special speakers. And so it was really my opportunity, my chance, to engage with immigration in any kind of significant way. There were a couple of things there that really stood out for me. One was that I had an opportunity to um, participate in a naturalization clinic. So this was for folks who were somewhere in the process in America and wanted to become naturalized and, and to do so needed to fill out forms and paperwork and so they gathered together as many of the Unitarian Universalists that were there who wanted to participate and that was about 3,000 of us 
So they had to kind of make up jobs for some of us at the clinic. Um, Luckily, I speak a little Spanish, so I got to do some of the fun stuff. I got to actually work with somebody on, um, on her paperwork and was amazed by how challenging that paperwork is, by how difficult it was to navigate the system and the paperwork, all caps, black pen only, or immigration will refuse it. So that was one experience as I, as I went through that process with one woman in particular who was seeking naturalization. She was a Salvadorian immigrant, actually. I, I talked to her a little bit about the large Salvadorian population in D.C., and this was in Phoenix where almost uh, the vast majority of immigrants are from Mexico, and she said that she thought maybe she'd move to D.C. <laughs> come, uh, come hang out with us here. The other thing that, that I participated in in Phoenix, which was um, eye-opening, was a vigil at Tent City. How many of you know what Tent City is? It's a detention center for immigrants in Maricopa County, the county that Phoenix is part of. And, um, and it's really run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the sheriff of Mira. There you go, see? Well, not that name. <laughs> sheriff Joe Arpaio is a um, vehement uh, anti-immigration uh, sheriff and, and um, really has been very involved in the political framework in Maricopa County and in Arizona in general. But more than that, there seems to be something, um, frankly, there seems to be something wrong with him. The way he treats people in this detention center that he's put together, um, kind of public shaming um, that doesn't really have anything to do with detention um, and more to do with dehumanization. And that's what I experienced as I learned about and prepared for that vigil, and they did a lot of work trying to prepare us for what it would be like uh, a couple of hours out in the sun. There was a lot of bottled water. Um, But really experiencing and understanding the dehumanization that that occurs at Tent City. And then, as always for me, it's learning about the dehumanization and then seeing the humanity that is most moving. And, and for me, you know, we didn't really get that close to the detention center itself. We were kind of just on the outskirts of Tent City. Of course, we weren't allowed inside as a body. Um, and, uh, and so mostly I was surrounded by, you know, all of these other folks kind of standing there with our candles and singing and our bottles of water and every once in a while some really large cockroaches. But then as we left and we got back on these buses that had brought us there from our comfortable hotels and convention center. Lining, there were some, um, there were some counter protesters who were there, but I didn't really see them and they had coached us really well. So we were all singing as we walked and we really felt kind of surrounded by this experience of solidarity ourselves. So that didn't bother me so much. What got to me were the lines of folks who were standing there thanking us. Standing there with their families and their posters saying, thank you for being here. And to be thanked for standing for three hours, I mean, really, it it just wasn't that much. But to know that my presence there somehow linked me with these folks and that they appreciated it, to me, that was the humanity that rose up above the dehumanization of Tent City. And it's the connection to the human aspect, to the humanity, that really gets me about immigration. In some ways you think, well, what other aspect could there be, right? Immigration is about the movement of humans 
across the world. So, of course, it's about humanity. But that's the piece that that just speaks to me most deeply as I try to understand the intricacies of policy and of law. I come back always to that sense of humanity. Part of the research that I did um, for this platform was reading writings that other folks have done around immigration, other sermons and platforms that they've written. And there was one in particular that to me spoke to that shared humanity, to just the, um, the idea that there was something so wrong in how we're going about this as a country. It was a sermon written by a lay person, Heather Nan Carpenter, and she was talking about her experience on a border links trip. Border links takes folks to the um, uh, usually Mexican-Texas border, I think. Um, but, but really all along that border with Mexico, you know, we have huge parts that have been really militarized where there's big walls and, and lots of... Um, you know, lots of armed guards and, and all of that. And then there's whole sections of the border that, that aren't militarized, where the wall's not that big because the desert there is so bad that the desert will just kill you anyway if you try to get across. And so we don't need to bother by militarizing that section because the, the desert is unforgiving. So Heather Nan Carpenter is talking about... Um, her experience with border links, where she met Shanti, a woman who was working with No More Deaths. And No More Deaths works in that area of the border in particular. They bring water, they provide medical care to undocumented immigrants who are trying to get across the desert, who want so badly, who need so badly to be in another place that they'll risk the unforgiving desert there. So here's what, um, what Heather writes. At the time I met Shanti, she was still working with No More Deaths. The No More Deaths legal team was fighting this battle in court because Shanti, um, Shanti and her colleague Daniel were both 23, facing a 15-year sentence because they had provided medical care to undocumented immigrants. Heather writes, they refused to plea out when the constitutionality of this law was so questionable. In 1850, she goes on with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. Many Unitarians and some Universalists were outraged by a law that similarly made it illegal for Northerners to aid escaped slaves. I know, Heather wrote, that the contexts are very different, but the same argument stands. This is the part that resonated for me. It cannot possibly be illegal to save a human being's life. It cannot possibly be. How can that be that it's illegal to save another human being's life? I'm going to talk a little bit more about humane immigration reform in a few minutes and some of the touchstones I think that we can, that we can look for there. But that's the piece that, that really starts for me, that shared humanity that we have with others. So I'd like to share with you just a little bit more that I've learned about how we got to this point of immigration, why it is that we're flooded particularly with, with immigrants coming from Latin American countries. And, and I experienced that through the Harvest of Empire movie, which I know some of you just went to the premiere at Silver Spring. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy and I got to watch it um, at home with my husband. I'm not sure that was really, like, usually we watch sitcoms. Um, <laughs> Harvest of Empire is about the American governmental involvement 
in so many of the countries, really all of the countries that now have the highest number of immigrants coming to America from Latin America. And I knew some of those stories about American, America's governmental involvement in those countries, but I didn't know all of them. Many of us have heard some of the stories about El Salvador because of our congregation's sister community in El Salvador, El Rodeo, and the work of many of our West folks there in El Rodeo. And I know that West people have seen firsthand the devastation experienced in that village of El Rodeo. That was a community where almost everything was destroyed because of resistance. And then the resulting need to leave, to escape. But through that movie, which I recommend that you see, I, I believe it plays at the Majestic for some time, and you can get information about it after platform outside in the lobby. Through that movie, I learned much more about how the economics and politics, international economics and politics, are intertwined, how NAFTA plays a role in having drastically altered the economies of those countries such that subsistence and kind of traditional subsistence farming is really impossible now. The film is hard to watch, but I think it's important to watch. One reviewer's summary, I think, kind of uh, clarifies it for me. This was from the Washington Post, I believe. They said, you know, the, the basic message of the film is this. If you don't want your neighbor to come knocking on your door, then don't burn down their house. And that's what's happened in so many Latin American countries. We have burned down, literally, burned down their houses. And so they have no place to go but here. So it's through some of that understanding of the political and economic situations that, that led to the current wave of immigration, and then through my experience at Tent City and the naturalization workshops, it's that learning that led me to understand how immigration is really my problem, why immigrants are my people. I like the way Peter Morales, the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, puts it in a sermon called We Are One. He wrote, I am not suggesting that our country does not need to control its borders, and I do not pretend to have all the policy answers. I do know this. We cannot pretend that we had nothing to do with the creation of this problem. I also know this. We are all connected. We are in this together. And for me, that's really kind of the heart of immigration in America and the need for immigration reform. There are a number of problems with the immigration system in America right now, and you'll hear those uh, illustrated much more effectively at the workshop afterward. There's a, a famous phrase, I think, from Martin Luther King Jr., although I'm not sure, that says um, preachers are supposed to say that justice shall roll down like waters, and then the politicians figure out the plumbing. So that's how I feel about this kind of thing. But I can tell you just briefly that some of the real problems in the immigration system in America have to do with visa backlogs, with families that are torn apart because of our immigration policies, with some of the detention centers, which are really unjust, and the militarization both of the border and of the American police as well. And I did find six touchstones I said I would share with you. This is from an interfaith coalition for humane immigration reform. And it's got all the right people who have signed on, you know. The progressive Lutherans and the Presbyterians are there, Unitarian Universalists and the Methodist women, and um, all of the nuns. 
you know, if the nuns are on board, then you want to be there too. That's all I have to say. It's the key to interfaith work. Are there a lot of nuns? Oh, great then. So there are six touchstones for humane immigration reform, which I found really helpful and which I want to share with you. And I think that they, they make sense, really, you know. One is to uphold family unity as a priority of all immigration policies. And this is one of the ones where it feels most personal to me and most about our shared humanity and how we treat each other humanely, that we find a way to keep families together. A second touchstone is that we create a process for undocumented immigrants to earn their legal status and eventual citizenship. This is um, kind of the path to citizenship concept that we hear a lot about, that we have a sign about, actually, outside our building right now. For those who have come to this country undocumented, sometimes as tiny children, and who have worked hard and paid taxes and followed all the other rules that we provide an opportunity for them to follow more rules and fill a lot of things out with, uh, you know, ballpoint pens and all caps and get through the process in a way that's acceptable, that, that leads to them having a secure and legal status in America. The third touchstone is that we protect workers and provide efficient channels of entry for new migrant workers. And Ross Wells, who's been working a great deal on immigration here, as well as with our partner community in El Rodeo, um, shared something that I thought was so helpful, such a helpful way to look at this, that the problem of immigrant workers is really about labor in general. And to the extent that we denigrate immigrant workers, that we keep them from having labor rights and worker rights, we're denigrating labor in general and the rights of all workers in America. So this is really about how we value work and how we value and honor laborers and workers in America. It's good for all of our workers if we have just uh, economic and labor policy for immigrant workers. So, uh, so that's, that's the, what did I say, the third one. The fourth one is to facilitate immigrant integration, and that includes opportunities for naturalization for folks who are here with documentation, like, like the woman that I worked with at the naturalization workshop in Phoenix. You know, she needs an easier way to access the system. It's a great fit, actually, that work, I think, for a community like ours. Um, who better, really, to know how to handle bureaucracy and forms than a bunch of government workers, <laughs> lawyers, and overeducated perpetual students, right? We can fill out forms, people. And I want to let you know that Casa de Maryland has naturalization workshops very similar to what I did in clinics, um, to what I did in Phoenix. There's one coming up this Saturday in Hyattsville. There's a training at 9 o'clock, and, um, and you come at, and then start working at 10, and it goes from 10 to 2. So I want to make sure you know about that, and I'm sure that you can get more information about that from Kim, uh, who's here from Casa de Maryland. It was really a, a fabulous experience, very satisfying. And, um, and lawyers check your work as well, so you don't have to feel too nervous that you're going to fill something out incorrectly. The fifth, um, the fifth touchstone is restoring due process protections and reforming detention policies. And that speaks directly to the tent city experience, you know, to how it is that we um, detain folks who don't have uh, appropriate documentation, how we treat them. Do we treat them humanely, and do we have processes that they can go through that are humane, that are in line with the, with the concept of the American justice system, you know? Um, so, so restoring that due process. And then, finally, aligning the enforcement of immigration laws with humanitarian values. That's where it gets back to me with that idea, you know, it cannot be illegal to save another human being's life. How do we see immigrants 
not as immigrants, but as, as fellow human beings, and make sure that what we do aligns with that. My mother um, went with me to that Phoenix assembly, and she shared with me just the other day something she learned at one of the workshops, that um, ICE workers, uh, that's the immigration, um, uh, immigration police, essentially, ICE workers, uh, carry toys in their pockets. That sounds nice, doesn't it, you know, toys for the kids? How they carry them so that they can distract the children while they take their mothers away. That's just not humane. It's not right. And I think that that final touchstone is really what undergirds what I hope for in immigration policy, that we create an immigration policy in America that we can be proud of as Americans and as citizens of the world, as humans. Now, I think, too, you know, we struggle as we work on that kind of reform. Well, what about legality? What about rules? What about folks who came in here legally and got all the right documentation? We're a fair-minded people, and I myself am an avid rule follower and institutionalist. Seeing Harvest of Empire helped me to understand the history better and some of the rules that our government didn't follow that, that led to the place we are now. And participating in things like the Naturalization Clinic helped me to understand the deep brokenness of the system that we have. Michael Tino, Unitarian Universalist minister, wrote in a sermon called A Knock at the Door, we get angry because, after all, there are supposed to be legal ways to come into this country, are there not? The truth is that for most poor people around our world, the legal immigration system is impossible to penetrate. And he speaks, I think, to the fact that the way our immigration system works works for people with means, people with formal education, people with money for lawyers, people with support and backup to be able to navigate. But it's not working for the folks who may need it to work the most for them. And what about, anyway, the idea that, a just, that justice fights always include conversation about legality and morality, about where those two interact and are the same and where they fall apart. I turn again to words from Peter Morales who writes, as a religious people who affirm human compassion, advocate for human rights, and seek justice, we must never make the mistake of confusing a legal right with a moral right. He goes on to list all of the things over world history that have been legal and morally repugnant. And he says, the fact that something is legal does not cut much ethical ice. The powerful have always used the legal system to oppress the powerless. It's true that as citizens, he goes on, we should respect the rule of law. More importantly, though, our duty is to create laws founded on our highest sense of justice, equity, and compassion. Loud voices urge us to choose fear, denial, reactionary nationalism, and racism. We must resist and choose the better way urged by every major religious tradition. We must choose the path of compassion and hope. We must choose a path that is founded on the recognition that we are connected, that we are all in this together. Gets right back to that idea of humanness and shared humanity, about recognizing that all of us are human. You know, anti-immigration rhetoric has always been about dehumanizing, about making someone the other different from us, how they look, how they smell, how they talk, how they worship, how they eat. 
Reclaiming that sense of a shared us may be the deepest piece of work that a religious people, an ethical people, a people of values can do in immigration work or any other kind of justice work, I think. I want to end just with a, an image I, I just found online in the Washington Post yesterday as I was kind of taking a break from preparing for the platform and scanning what was going on this weekend in the city. And of course what's going on are St. Patrick's Day events, right, you know, all around the city, green bagels and that kind of thing. And there was an image, a big picture that was just beautiful of a dancer from last year's St. Patrick's Day parade in Gaithersburg. And, uh, you know, she was joyful. She was wearing this great green outfit, bright green skirt, bright green top, sparkles everywhere. My daughter would really have loved it. And, uh, and she was dancing her heart out in celebration of St. Patrick's Day. She was one, a dancer from one of the many Bolivian dance troops in this area. You know, you go to any parade in Montgomery County, and it's like, some, some fire engines and Bolivian dance troops. And that's why I, I go for the Bolivian dance troops, actually. You know, they're very popular in my family. And I just loved this picture of this St. Patrick's Day celebration. Totally green, totally Irish, totally Bolivian. <laughs> you know, that that's the hope that we can get there, that we can be a people that celebrate St. Patrick's Day with Bolivian dancers <laughs> and a lot of sparkles. That after all of the policy reform that we need, all of the laws that need to be changed and the laws that need to be enforced appropriately, all of the work that we can do as a community, that, I think, is the goal. Sparkles and Irish Bolivian dancers. So I want to close with that image in mind, just try to hold it. She had a huge smile on her face. You can find it later online if you want to see it. But she just was, boy, she was excited about St. Patrick's Day. I want to close then with the words from Chicana poet Gloria Anzaldúa. And she's, she's writing about what she calls the new mestiza, which is a mixed person, right? The new mestiza, she wrote develops a tolerance for contradictions, a tolerance for ambiguity. She learns to juggle cultures. She has a plural personality. She operates in a pluralistic mode. Nothing is thrust out, nothing rejected, nothing abandoned. It is work that the soul performs. That focal point or fulcrum, that juncture where the mestiza stands, is where phenomena tend to collide. It is where the possibility of uniting all that is separate occurs. That's my wish for America. Bright green Bolivian Irish dancers <laughs> and uniting all that is separate.